Hey guys, it's Melissa here from MelissaOatman.com. Welcome to another episode of Awaken Your Inner Awesomeness. I am so delighted that you're here with me today. We have a very special guest with us. Today we have with us Mr. Claude Anchin Thomas. He's a Zen Buddhist monk, an author of two books, a combat Vietnam veteran, and he is the founder of the Zalto Foundation. And he is here today to talk to us about his books, about how to live your life without having to suffer because many people who go through traumatic experiences uh, find that they create a lot of it creates a lot of suffering for them in their own lives so we're going to tap into his wisdom today and i cannot wait to do that so thank you all for joining me and thank you so much claude and shen for being here today oh, you're very welcome thanks for having me on your show absolutely it's such a pleasure and um, I'm very impressed by the work that you've done because I think it is so very important. Um, I know personally people who have been in the Vietnam War and it was very traumatic for them. And so I am very, very grateful to you for the work that you're doing to help veterans. Um, thank you. The, the engagement that I have with um, people who served in the military and who have served in combat theaters and in combat itself is not limited um, to Vietnam. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I have the privilege of being able to engage with um, men and women um, that have served in a, in a number of conflict areas. And uh, my engagement with uh, former soldiers is not restricted just to the US. Um, I've, I've had, um, somehow or other, I've gained a reputation. I've been invited into South America. I've been in. I've um, traveled before COVID. I was traveling regularly to Colombia and to Chile, to Ecuador, to Bolivia, and in these places, I was working with the real, also with, um, for example, in Colombia, uh, working with. Um, it, it didn't matter to me what faction a particular uh, individual who was involved in fighting represented, and that they weren't fighting. Um, and that they were having then to live with the consequences of that was of importance to me. Because if the real issues of how we are impacted by um, our uh, military experience are not acknowledged and addressed in some way, um, they continue to have ripple effects throughout society and culture. Mm -hmm. In fact, the, uh, my combat service, um, uh, it, it has my combat service was a result of the ripples that came through past generations. My father was a combat soldier. My grandfather was a combat soldier. My great-grandfather was a combat soldier. Um, and they go forward into, into future generations. Um, directly, for example, my son, my son has not served in the military. Um, and not because I, I, I uh, pushed him away from that. I didn't. Um, my son is a commercial airline pilot, and he um, he still wears a uniform. And, yeah. and, 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 um, and it was a certain point of time when he thought the only way he could get pilot training was through the military. And I just encouraged him to do research. And I was candid with him about um, what I experienced as the truth, that, that um, The, the, the truth that we cannot escape unscathed 
from our military service. Mm -hmm. We just can't. It's just not possible. Um, yes, it's true that um, people um, are affected in, in varying degrees. Um, but what I watch, uh, what I see unfolding. So here in the United States, I'll talk about this. Um, at, at last count, somewhere between 17 and 22 veterans a day were committing suicide. Um, I haven't seen any uh, current numbers. Um, so I, I'll hold with that. Um, if that number was only two, that's still too, too many. Absolutely. The, 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 the largest percentage of that group are between 50 and 70. It's not the current crop of veterans, although that there is an increasing number of, of uh, suicides among active duty military and those who have recently served. Um, but of that number 17 to 22, the large percentage are between the ages of 50 and 70. And so what's that, what that's saying is that, uh, like in my own case, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I, I, thought, I thought that the chaos and instability of my life were just the result of my, it was just part of life. Um, I didn't understand the, the way that I had been affected, the way I had been morally injured and the way that moral injury was expressing itself. Um, post-traumatic stress being uh, um, fitting under that umbrella of moral injury. So um, it, at a certain point, um, after addressing what I saw as a, the major dysfunctions in my life, um, I was suddenly face to face with the truth of my service. And um, and the, the awakening to that was destabilizing. It was excruciatingly painful and confusing to really, to really confront the, the truth, not, not my imagination of the truth, but how I was affected, the role that not only my combat service played, but the, the role that my father's combat service played in my life and my grandfather's combat service, the way that role that that played in my life. So I'm dealing with not only my own, but the transgenerational effects of war, violence, and suffering. And um, what I, if somebody doesn't want to live differently, no matter what is presented to them, they're not going to change. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not, if they're not willing to wake up, if they want to just maintain what they think is, is this safety that they've created this this a lot of people have created a certain sort of envelope of safety around them the greeks have a word for this they call it themis and 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 they and so creating this veil of safety around me i think that i'm okay but eventually something happens to penetrate that veil of themis um, something happens to a child a job is lost a, or, or retirement comes about, or if a person is married, then their spouse, um, something may happen to their spouse, or th there could be a divorce, or suddenly there's um, the dis there's a discovery of substance abuse and, and the real cost, cost of substance abuse. And, and all of a sudden, that veil of 
that protective veil that we've created around ourselves begins to crumble and we're face to face with the truth of our service, which is quite destabilizing. And without a discipline, uh, without some sort of discipline in our life, and, and I refer to it as a discipline spiritual practice, not religious, mm -hmm. um, then being able to sort of navigate um, the complexities of this process of awakening are challenging. Yes, um, and I know that just having PTSD is a very um, challenging thing in and of itself um, because my own children have experienced it not because of war or, or being in the military, but I understand how challenging that can be. And so you've created this foundation. So tell us a little bit about this Alto Foundation. I'm glad to do that. Thank you for asking. I would, however, like to address two points uh, before I talk about the foundation. Sure. Um, one of the points that you mentioned is that um, what I attempt to pass on to people is what was passed on to me, is that um, the absence of suffering doesn't mean that I that that suffering somehow goes away. What what I what I help people to discover is a path to living at peace with their unpeacefulness. So if if I uh, a lot of the struggles happen with uh, the people that I meet because um, they want the ten easy steps um, that will take away that will take away all of this, what they deem as uncomfortable. Um, and that's just simply not, I don't think that's the truth of life. Um, so what I, what I really make an effort to be clear with people about is that I'm, off, I'm not offering them a panacea. What I'm offering them are some, are some uh, as a disciplined approach to life that when they are confronted, by their suffering, whatever it is, that um, they have the tools to be able to hold steady in the midst of that, and it will pass. In the beginning, it takes, it may, it seems like it will never pass. But as we begin to have experience, more experience with not rejecting that suffering as it creeps into our life or not allowing it to define us, we begin to develop, to develop emotional muscles, mm -hmm. emotional strength. And so uh, that suffering, when it shows itself, it doesn't last as long. Um, also, post-traumatic stress. Um, it, those of us who, who, who live with post-traumatic stress, we are not disordered. We, we are response to the world makes absolute sense based on the truth of our experiences. And, and I think it's, uh, I, I'm, so everyone I engage with, I, I give them that information. I go, look, I go, yo, look, man, <laughs> you are not disordered. We are not disordered. Yeah. It's not a cycle. It's, there's a psychological component to how we're affected, but it's not purely psychological. It, and, and, and I think the underlying um, process to learning to live at peace with our unpeacefulness 
is a spiritual process, yeah. not religious, spiritual. And when I, so as you introduced, I, I'm a Zen Buddhist monk. I'm, I'm fully ordained in a Japanese Zen Buddhist tradition. Um, however, um, when people come into retreat with me, particularly veterans, um, I'm not, I'm, my purpose is not to convince or convert, but rather offer tools to them that have been passed on to me that really serve me well, that, that aren't anything other than daily life. Mm -hmm. It's how we approach daily life. Um, now the Zolto Foundation, originally I created the foundation um, as a way to um, support, to raise money to support Vietnam veterans to go back to Vietnam. Because I heard that the process was quite cathartic for a number of, of uh, men and women. Mm -hmm. However, uh, uh, most of the people that I knew, not everyone, but a majority of the people that I knew who had served just didn't have the resources. Right. So I was able to establish a 501c3. Um, and, um, and the intent was that if people were to donate money to support veterans going back to Vietnam, they could get a tax rebate. So it would be an incentive for them to donate. However, this foundation has grown far beyond my wildest imaginations. And, um, and it's grown as a result of the um, dedicated and hard work of the members who are currently on the board. Once I became ordained, um, I, had to, I had to step back from any official capacity with the board, uh, but I will say that the board of directors of the Zolto Foundation, and, in, and they're listed on the, on the Zolto Foundation website, and they're listed, there's a biography on them, and all of their services are donated, and they are an extremely talented and gifted group of people. So um, we, we, I mean, it's, <laughs> the, the, what we do, what the foundation does is it, is extensive. It's not just, it's just not, we don't work just with veterans. We engage mm -hmm. with the homeless community. We, uh, uh, we engage with um, we are actively engaged with communities at large to bring uh, a meditation practice, to, to bring the tools of a meditation practice into a wide variety of communities. Um, not restricting it to just those who want to come to a temple or to a church or so, but take it, take meditation practice out into the community and to really be clear with people that meditation is not something that can be taught. What I can relay to them are form, is form and function. And mm -hmm. if they are steady with form and function, then the reality of meditation will begin to show itself to them. And, and it is the most powerful tool that I have ever experienced. And in my case, what I offer is, is free. I mean, yeah. Everything I do because of my vows, everything I do, I do for free. Um, however, the foundation cannot exist and we cannot do the work we do without the support of a larger community who are, who are very blue collar in nature and, mm -hmm. um, and, and so we make an effort to take the donations that are given to us and they go ex put exactly into action. Uh -huh. That's amazing. 
And I know when you're talking about meditation too, that your latest book is also about meditation, correct? Yes, bringing meditation to life. Tell us more about that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's very interesting. So I've had the privilege of having two books published. And considering my background, it's, it's um, for me, it's just still, it's just quite surreal. Mm -hmm. um, because at a certain point in my life, I was living on the streets, homeless, in an abandoned car in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in an alleyway between two major streets. And I thought that my life was good. And, and to, to have come from that place to be sitting here talking with you, an author of two books and having the, the opportunity to, to, um, to interact with the sorts of people that I'm, I'm privileged to interact with and, and to have been the founder of a foundation that's grown beyond my imaginations, that's doing this amazing sort of work in the world is, is uh, and, and it, it's really just, the only thing I can attribute it to is first, first, I had to stop taking intoxicants and stay stopped. And I had to stop getting it. That was in my getting in my way. And yeah. and um, and 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 at that point, um, my, my life had an I had an opportunity then to, to experience life more directly. That led me to Zen practice, which led me to the tool of breath awareness, which led me to um, led me to the understanding that. Uh, for my life, I'm responsible. If I want the world to be different, then I need to be different. I need to live differently. I need to be the peace I want to see in the world. So it's not about getting the world to conform to my ideas of it, but wake up to the roots of war, violence, and suffering in me. The other book, may I? Should, may I? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, the first book that I had the privilege to publish at Hell's Gate, A Soldier's Journey from War to Peace. Now, I did not set out to write a book. It was never my intention. At Hell's Gate came about, uh, so as I was first waking up to how I was affected by war, as I was first waking up to the roots of war violence and suffering in me, and like the only way I could seem to give voice to that voicelessness, what I couldn't say was through writing. I didn't know how to talk about this stuff. So I just started to write. So there was a, an accumulation of writings. And then I was approached by, um, I was approached by a, a man who's now become very successful. Um, he has a, um, he has a publishing company, Idea Architects. And he approached me and said, he'd heard me do, do a talk out in California. And he asked me if I would, if I'd ever thought about writing a book. And I said, well, no. <laughs> No, other people had suggested that. And he said, well, do you have anything written? I said, yes. And he said, send it to me. I send it to him. And then, and then he and I worked together to, to get it organized. And then um, he shopped it. And, uh, and, and I remember the first, the first time somebody asked me um, if I had material that was written and, and would I send it to them? It was a different it was a person who had come to a talk that worked for a publishing house. They told me I couldn't write. And that would probably be another 10 or 12 years and a lot of hard work before I could learn how to write. 
Um, what's amazing about this particular book is that people gravitate it because they say it's so well written. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting how things are. <laughs> I must also say, though, um, the editor of the book, who's also now a board member, uh, um, they don't work as an editor anymore, um, um, really, uh, oh, I owe a deep debt of gratitude to them. Um, they, the, the work that they did with me on this book was not that they wanted it to be different than it was, they um, would say they would say to me, "Look, they, how can, how can you say this more clearly?" And said, "Give me some." So I would write some more, and then we went through that process. Uh, they really gained my trust through that process. They didn't want to; they wanted the book to be my book, to be my words, and and so it's really a, a solid reflection. Now we move on to bringing meditation to life. The same editor, who's now a board member, who's not technically not an editor anymore, approached me and said, um, did you ever consider doing a book of quotes or saying? And I said, well, I, I you know, I mean, <laughs> I don't collect my quotes and say, <laughs> I go, I go, that's like, that's just not something I do. It seems a little, to me, it would seem a little self-absorbed, mm -hmm. just from my perspective. But they said, well, what about other people? Have there, are there people who've collected quotes or been sort of inspired by something you've said or something you've written? I said, I have no idea. And, and then they said, well, why don't we send out an email to the immediate students or people on the, on the Zolto mailing list and see what comes back? And so crafted an email, sent it out, and people started sending in these quotes and things that they'd heard that they were inspired about, notes that they'd taken. And so out of that, out of that, uh, the book was crafted. And so that's how bringing meditation to life came into place. And, and, and really, it's so important for me, I stress this constantly, that meditation and daily life are not two things. Yes. Well, I think... You know, I mean, you've made the point that challenges are going to happen in life. They always will. But mm -hmm. it's not hoping to have a life where you never have challenges. It's being able to work through them and being able to control how you react to the challenges when they um, when they happen. And it sounds like that's really a lot of what you're helping people to see is that you're going to have challenges, but the suffering, what is it? Challenges are inevitable. Suffering is optional, something like that. Um, I like to say suffering, um, our, our suffering never goes away. It's always present, hmm? but we don't have to suffer. It's our relationship with that suffering that determines the more I don't want to suffer, the more I'm going to suffer. Mm -hmm. It's like the analogy I sometimes use and I, I understand that quote you said. I, I, I don't quite work with it that way, but it, it's, it's true in, in some respect. It's true, and, but I also think I, I'm cautious not to, to attempt to create the illusion that, that, that there is a path where you don't have to feel uncomfortable anymore, mm -hmm. where the sort of suffering is washed away. Sure. Suffering is a natural condition of life. Um, um, however, I don't have to suffer. 
for example, if I were to step into, if I were to fall suddenly into a bat, into a, um, I'm, I'm walking through the forest and I step into a, a soft spot and all of a sudden I discovered I'm in quicksand. The more I struggle, the quicker I sink. Right. If I stop struggling, I can actually move and swim in that stuff. And so it, it is, this is the way I like to approach the topic of suffering. Um, look, I, I haven't slept more than two hours consecutively in any night since 66. And, and I, I suffered immensely because I had this fixed idea that I was supposed to sleep a fixed number of night, as hours per night, and that I was supposed to have no difficulty and no dreams and, and on and on and on. And, and because it was, wasn't like that, the world wasn't conforming to my ideas of it. Oh, it was horrible. My life was horrible. And then once I, once I encountered um, Zen training and, um, and I, I, I began to have this, I got the information that, that I, I pass on to others, um, that I was washing dishes one day and looking out the window and, and I just had this awareness that, okay, so I don't sleep, now what? So it's not that I don't sleep, it's like how, adjust to my sleep pattern. Yeah. I sleep like this and 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 when uh, like even just two nights ago uh, I, I woke up I woke up soaked and just soaked in sweat and I I was checking my body to see if I'd been shot those things still visit me mm -hmm. um, and uh, but now when that happens I, I can I, all I have to do is just stop for a moment and 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 reconnect really uh, intentionally reconnect with my breath and, and and i'm able to to with the with the breath i'm able to 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 be less agitated to steady myself to realize where i'm at and to be really thankful that that was just a dream yeah <laughs> yeah and i um i know what you're talking about when you say that you um you kind of have to bring yourself back to your awareness and to get centered because i think that a lot of times we have something happen to us and we kind of get thrown off balance and we can either really let it continue to take us down this cycle of oh my gosh look what happened to me my life is so bad and or yeah. we can stop and just come back to our heart center and say okay I am aware that this something I didn't want to happen has happened, but I don't have to have a terrible life because something that I didn't want to happen happened. I need to come back to the present moment instead of, I think what happens to a lot of people is they get caught up in the what's gonna happen five months from now and they get caught up in that future. Mm -hmm. What if, what if, what's gonna happen now instead of being aware of where they are in the present moment. And that makes it really difficult to navigate what's happening, I think. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, actually, nothing else exists except the present moment. If I spent too much time up in my head, I'm in a really bad neighborhood. Yeah. And, and so I have to be, this is why this discipline, spiritual practice that I have serves me so well. Um, because it, uh, look, breath is free. And, and the, the other thing that I learned was 
um, and I learned this through my monastic training was that um, the past doesn't actually exist. The future doesn't actually exist. I mean, they do exist, but they exist now in this moment. And so um, there's nothing I can do about tomorrow. But, but I learned if I take care of what's right in front of me, well, whatever that means, that tomorrow takes care of itself. Absolutely. Yeah. That doesn't mean that I don't have plans. It doesn't mean that I don't have ideas. But I, I, I'm, I'm cautious about locking myself into results. Well, and I think that you said it earlier, you know, I think a lot of people, we put unrealistic expectations on future events, on things that are going to happen. And when we do that, we, we end up causing, I think, a lot more suffering than what is necessary because we, our reality doesn't match up to what our expectation was. Yes, that, that's well said. And often I, I see people that attempting to get life to conform to their ideas of it. And that's, and that I understood in, in my own way, I understood that that's because, um, that because of, uh, here's a word, karma. Yeah. This, is a, this is a word that's really common in the lexicon. And but few people really understand the truth of karma. They understand it as like, okay, if I do something bad, then something bad is gonna happen to me. If I do something good, something good's gonna happen to me. That's sort of true, but not, but it might not go down like that. Right. <laughs> that there are two different types of karma. There's the karma which I inherited, which I inherit from all those family generations that precede me endlessly. And from the, the collective conscious of which I'm a part of, the society and culture. And so whatever the society and culture is I'm engaged with, they also influence my life. They shall, they should, there is no individual self. I'm, I'm a a composite of all that karma which I have inherited. Then out of that, I act. That's the karma that I create. Now, the amazing thing about Zen practice for me was that what I learned is that I, I'm not trapped. I'm not trapped forever in this cycle that I felt I was trapped forever in, that I can change. Karma can be changed. Now, I have to give up my ideas about what that means. Because if I have an idea, well, I'm going to change it like this, that's not going to work. Yeah. That that what what the way my the way karma changes is that through becoming the willingness to become more still. Whatever that means to someone, I'm concentrating on the breath, I get to see um, what in my life um, what in my life uh, creates difficulties, and I can stop doing that stuff. You know, I don't have, I'm not driven. I mean, with, in unawareness, I am driven. But, but as I'm willing to become more aware, I am less driven by that suffering. And so I can learn to live in a different relation with it. I can just stop doing that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I think a lot of people get stuck in doing things they don't necessarily want to do because it's what society says that they have to do. So they get stuck in marriages where they're not happy or they're in jobs that they don't like. They picked careers, you know, that aren't really fulfilling to them. And when you can get still and be very quiet, for me, that's when I can feel the stirrings of the divine. I refer to my higher power as the divine. Sure. 
guiding me towards the path that really is more fulfilling for me and what you know my heart really would rather be doing rather than all of the things that I feel like I have to be doing. So I think many times we're just keeping ourselves busy for the sake of being busy. And then at some point, as I mentioned before, like around the topic of post-traumatic stress, which is an element of moral injury, the betrayal of what is right by people in authority, in power and authority, that, that at some point, all of that, that I have, what you've described is, is what the Greeks term as themis, creating that, attempting to conform to some idea of how life is supposed to be. And if I do that, then everything will be okay for me. And then something penetrates that, something shatters that illusion or cracks it just a bit. Suddenly I'm going, oh my gosh, people are going, People are going, oh my gosh, what's the point of my life then? Like I've done all of this and, and I've done all of this for what? What's the point of this? And then bam, suicide seems like an option um, or they just, they just say, wow, I've just, it, it's just like all of a sudden it's like the rugs pulled out from underneath them. I've wasted my whole life. There's no point. Yeah. And it's, it's simply not true. At exactly that moment, there is an opportunity to wake up. And, and that's where I step in. That's just another thing, since COVID, I'm, um, by vow, I'm not permitted to be residential more than three months a year. However, COVID, <laughs> COVID, <laughs> yeah. that, that changed. But that since I've been residential, um, people have realized that that I'm here and that um, I, they realize my engagement and things that I've done and I'm willing to do. And so over the months I've been called on numerous occasions for suicide interventions, um, often with, uh, I must think, these, these calls have been exclusively either with active duty military or veterans. And, um, but I only get called when the when in the, in the manifestation of these um, in the manifestations of these overtures, the individuals are armed. So they reach out to me before they call the police. And so far, as you can see, I'm I'm here. So far, um, no one's died, and no one's had to go to jail. Um, there's only so much. There's only so much that I can do. Um, the rest is up to the individual. If the individual is not willing to do things different, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what I offer. Nothing's going to change. Um, if an individual really wants things to be different, then absolutely everything that I present will be exactly perfect. If they're willing. Amazing. That is amazing, though. And I absolutely love that they reach out to you because um, obviously jail is not a helpful scenario for someone who is at that stage in their life. And boy, that's just such a difficult, that's a difficult subject to, um, to deal with and to talk about and to have someone feel like there is no other option than to take their life. 
Um, <clears throat> and I know um, I've had personal experience with that um, with, you know, people in my family. And so I understand how difficult that is. And it's awesome that you can step forward and help people in that way. Um, and that they've chosen to not go down that path, but see that, yes, there is an opportunity, you know, when you're at your lowest point, what better place is there to decide things can be different? That but, you can start over, you know, it doesn't have to continue down that same path. Well, I also look at, I, I don't distinguish between high and low. What I say is that exactly that moment you have an opportunity. The 13th of April, 1983, I was living in Concord, Massachusetts in a small cottage, like 500 square feet. I was sitting in front of the television and life was hopeless for me. I took a thousand milligrams of barbiturate because um, it, it seemed like the only way. I just, death just seemed like a better option at the time. And uh, I hadn't taken my, I didn't, see, this is an interesting thing. I didn't really want to die. I just didn't know how to live. Mm -hmm. So uh, although my door was shut and locked, I didn't take a phone off the hook. That was before cell phones. Yeah, they had, yeah, they, had, yeah, they still had it. And then a dial <laughs> phone. <laughs> yeah, I had to dial phone style, but with push buttons. Yeah. So, but I didn't take the phone off the hook, and somebody called me. I don't remember this. I answered the phone. They understood what was going on. They called the they called nine one one, and the police came. And they when they got there, um, they um, I was told later that I was already in cardiac arrest. Um, this was before Narcan or anything. So they I I survived that. And, and and I was once I got out of intensive care, I was in a, a sort of a one step down from intensive care. I still had wires and stuff on me, and and so three or three or four men came to visit me, and one of these men asked me if I was going to do it again, and I said Shh. I said you bet. I said anything has got to be better than the life that I have. He looked at me and said, "How do you know?" I said, "It could be worse." Yeah, yeah. And I'm saying it was just. There was something about what he said, and the time just it just was one of those moments, and it just was like, it just was piercing that thought, and I just went, "Holy cow, worse than this! Yeah. I better do something about this." Now I didn't right away, but it's what led me to, it led me to a drug and alcohol treatment center, and they sort of set me on that path, and um, and I have never looked back, even though this path. It's full of doubt for me. I often wonder if, if because it's an, I live a very non-conventional life. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if I look at, at, at traditional society and culture, um, and, and I still have those ruminations, yeah. Uh, it, it, is what I'm doing worth anything? I mean, I, I don't have a job. I don't have a retirement. I don't have... I don't have I don't have all the stuff that I'm supposed to have to make this show that I had a productive life and and so I'm still visited by those ruminations and then I all have to do is stop and come back to my breath and and just reflect uh, reflect on on where my, where I was and where I am and the opportunities that are presented to me as I have discovered through this process 
that what I used to perceive as my greatest liabilities have in some ways become my greatest asset. It's how I work with them. Yeah, and look at all of the lives that you're touching and changing in what you're doing. And that's amazing. And I think that that is a problem that many people have is that maybe what they really would love to do doesn't conform to society's expectations. I think, yes, I think that's certainly a, a major factor. The other thing, though, is, is uh, I, I look at not so much, every, for example, when I go out, if I get called on a suicide intervention, or if, I'm, if I'm, um, I walk into a homeless encampment, uh, it's not what I can do for them, but what they do for me. Because in my engagement with the people in these circumstances, bring me in contact with my conditioning, that re remind me of, of where I came from. And, and uh, like when I engage with the homeless encampments and people living in these encampments, I'm not there, I'm not there to, to, to help them. I have no idea what they need. What I'm there is to build relationships. That it's not me helping them. It's like, okay, I wanna know who you are, what your story is, that talk to me, get to know me. And as I get to know them, they, as we get to know one another, then they begin to trust me. And then I, I begin to see um, where um, we can be of support. And generally the foundation is uh, not so much um, a direct, they don't, this foundation doesn't do so much direct support, although they do some. It's more, this foundation is more a clearinghouse. So we have contacts with various agencies around regarding mental health issues and, and issues around homelessness and medical issues and, and who can provide financial support. We have contacts. There's enough agencies doing that sort of work, enough NGOs, enough nonprofits doing that kind of work. They, we don't need another one. So I identify those, those uh, we identify those agencies, groups, or, or that are doing, that are really doing good work. Um, and and so once we identify what a person needs, we can say, okay, um, we we can send you to some. We can send you to someone, and they will help you out. We can be we can be a, we can be sure of that. It's also true that um, just because a person lives outside doesn't mean their problems are all solved if they get housing. Some of them don't want that. Right. They're perfectly content with their life out there. It's how to support them where they're at. Yeah, that's you're absolutely right. Mm. That's awesome that you're doing that, though, because I think making connections is one of the most important things um, that we can do. And as yes. a teacher, that is one of the most important things I think you do in the classroom is making connections with your kids. Yeah, it, yes. It's, my father was a teacher. <laughs> yeah, my, my first degree is in education. Yes, uh, and, and it's like it's interesting. Uh, my dad's, my father's sister wanted her eldest son, and she converted to a particular religious faith, and she wanted her son to go into the priesthood of that faith, and, and he said, no, man, I'm not, no, man, I'm going to college. Yeah. Interesting, um, I was always looked at as sort of, I was always looked at as the problem child in the family, and, and here I am, the 
Here I am. The, well, I'm not a priest or a monk, but yes, yeah. interesting how the world turns. Yes. And I find that that does happen a lot. Honestly, that does yeah. happen that the one who might be considered to be maybe the black sheep or the, you know, the the one who isn't like everybody else in the family um, mm -hmm. ends up paving the way and paving the path mm. for others, too. So that's that's a big responsibility <laughs> for sure. But I definitely want to thank you for um, your service, for everything that you have done, because I think that it is such an important mission and just hearing you talk about going out and making connections with people not trying to necessarily change them but just trying to meet them where they are and understand what their needs are so that you can get them what they need i think that that's very very important yeah let them teach me exactly mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful and enlightening conversation. And yeah, you're welcome. It's been really, it's been I've enjoyed it so much. Yeah, it's really <laughs> easy to talk with you. I really have appreciated the time together. Yes, absolutely. And I would love for you to tell people if they would like to buy your books, because you mm -hmm. have two of them, or if they're interested in your foundation, maybe they want to donate, or maybe they would like to get someone some help. What's the best way for them to do that? Um, there, the, the books are available on a number of different through a number of different venues. Um, the, the easiest way really to, to get this information is to visit the website. I, I'm not saying that because I'm trying to generate traffic. It's just really the simplest way. Because uh, I have like I have like eight different websites or so for the book and all of that. Sure. If you go to the website, which is um, salto.org. That's Z-A-L-T-H-O dot org. Um, that information is there. Um, if you want to uh, be in contact with me, you can also reach me through the website. Um, those emails get to me pretty quickly. Um, if you want, um, uh, it, it's a really, the, the website itself is a clearinghouse. And so the information is there and it's really this board has, has recrafted and redone this website. It's just, it's amazing. Uh, if, if you want to get the book, um, like, for example, a number of people, uh, I bump into a number of people that don't like to go to Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. So if you don't want to shop at Amazon, you don't have to. The book's available in other places and, and they're listed um, on the website. Uh, or you can get the book directly from us. Um, there's, also, there's also a website uh, where um, all the, I also want to mention that all of the proceeds from the book, they get channeled right back into the foundation and they go to support the work of the foundation. So none of that really comes to me. Um, uh, we also have, uh, the foundation has a Facebook page. And again, you can find the Facebook page under the name Zalto, Z-A-L-T-H-O. And there's an Instagram page. And that can also be found uh, by just entering the name Zalto. Um, you cannot find me on social media. I have no social media presence. Mm -hmm. However, if you want to be in direct contact with me, if you, uh, if you go to the website, there's a way to write um, info at zalto.org, and then those emails get passed to me. Awesome. And we're going to have all of that information in the show notes, too. So we'll have the link to the website, and they can click directly to it from the show notes. 
So I, uh, I always like to ask our guests before we leave, if they could leave our listeners with one little nugget of wisdom to take with them for the day. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to do that. I, in fact, <laughs> um, if I may, we, we have, um, we offer formal meditation sessions and uh, followed by recitations online on Zoom every Thursday and every Saturday. That's also listed on the website. I also do a session, an open session of questions and responses on Sunday mornings. Um, all times are central. I'm in central standard time. So all times are central standard time. Um, and that's open, it's open to the public because it's internationally attended. And I meet with veterans um, Sundays at 6 p.m. Central time. How to, if you're interested to attend, what we ask is that you write and, and introduce yourself to us, and then we pass on the, the Zoom information to you. Um, but the nugget, what I, I, I always close these sessions um, with this piece of information, that if a thing is not practical, it's not spiritual. Love that. Thank you so very much. And that definitely resonates with me. So thank you for sharing that so much. And thank you for sharing yeah. your wisdom and everything that you do with the world. I just thank you so much for that. You're really welcome. I, I wish you much luck with your podcast. Thank this you. Been, it's been really nice. It's been nice to spend the time with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I want to thank you guys too for being here with us today. As always, thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like it, please subscribe. Please leave a positive review from wherever you're listening. And as always, the greatest compliment you can pay me is to share this podcast with those you might think benefit from it. Don't forget that you can follow me on social media. And if you want to work with me, you can go to my website, melissaoatman.com. You can also become a Patreon. You can do that at melissaoatman.com. There you get two extra episodes per week of this podcast, plus bonuses like guided meditations and readings. So please check it out. I hope that you guys are having a beautiful day from wherever you're listening. As always, I am sending you so much love and light, and I will talk to you soon. Bye, guys.